we all have the intention to reach our goals in property. Um, you know, but property is a very long-term game. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode of Invest Like a Pro presented by Housefinder, we're speaking with property buyer's agent Simon Liu. We hear about some of his clients' experience with the entry and exit strategies, how having the right mindset can change your fortunes, the fundamentals to buying the right property and much, much more. We are delving into the topic of your exit is as important as your entry. We hear about an example where this has been applied in Lou's experience. The notion having your exit is as important as your entry, when anyone buys a property, all they're thinking about is what they're buying. Is it a good investment property? Does it generate cash flow? Is it in a good area? You know, does it have equity? Can you add value to it? Which is all very important. But a lot of people, what they don't think of is that when they sell a property, is equally as important because when you sell a property, ultimately, whether you're holding it for one year, 10 years, 50 years, the sellability of that property will determine how much money you make. You know, you can strip equity out of it forever, but until the day that you sell it, that's when you actually make income. So a story that I have is, and and I actually have quite a few of these stories, is I get investors sometimes coming to me with a few properties under their belt. And they've bought properties that are very skewed towards high cash flow. Now, these properties may be, you know, some kind of odd dual living setup. It might be a property with a abnormally large amount of rooms inside the house that they might be renting out to students. It might be a small townhouse that in a, in a lower socioeconomic area that has great on paper yields and great cash flow on paper. So these are not necessarily in regional towns, they're actually in capital cities. Yeah, in capital cities, you know, and, um, you know, you, you hear nowadays like dual key properties quite a lot, you know, where the house is actually, it looks like a normal house from the front, but inside is actually two separate houses joined together, you know, so basically kind of like a duplex, but without the facade. You know, there are a lot of people selling these properties, you know, with the notion of having super high cash flow, which is what a lot of people chase. And a lot of people buy these properties. And what happens is, you know, using the, the okay, so uh, the example that I have would be a, a property where they bought a townhouse. On paper, it was 8% yield, which is really, really good, as you can imagine. The problem is nobody wants to buy these properties in this particular area because there's just so many of them. And also houses are very cheap. So in this particular area, which is in Brisbane, in the Logan area, the price of a of a two three bedroom uh, let's say a three bedroom townhouse you might be looking at two hundred and twenty thousand dollars which is very cheap for a property you know and you might get eight uh, percent rental yield coming out of that property which looks really good but there's a couple of pitfalls the number one thing being body corporate you know when you're buying a house that cheap with such a cheap rent you're very exposed to little costs you know, little costs can impact your cash flow significantly and body corporate is one of those little costs that is a huge cost when it comes to buying or owning one of these townhouse properties. But that's, you know, I'm digressing a little bit into the actual ownership of the property. The struggle is when you're buying these properties, 
they only ever appeal to novice investors. They're allured in by this cash flow, by the price point. So these units achieve very little capital growth because nobody wants them. But when you're selling it, if you're trying to sell it, if you're in a position where you have to sell the property, whether it's you know personal circumstances or you can't financially move on to the next property, whatever it is, nobody's going to buy it. You're going to have to sell it to another novice investor. And novice investors are under the same criteria or the same limitations as you were when you bought the property, which is a very small budget. That high cash flow is the only thing luring them in. Your personal assumptions compared to what the actual reality of the situation is can be completely different and Lou shed some light on this. So you're only going to be selling that property for the same price if not less than what you pay for it, which means that you're making a loss. Using the jewel key example property, you know, the only type of people buying those types of properties are investors. No one is going to be looking at that type of property to live in one day. You know, so you've immediately cut off the owner-occupier market completely, which is actually the kind of people you want to sell your investment property to because owner-occupier people buy emotionally. And when people buy emotionally, they don't really care too much about price. You know, so if you were to sell it to maybe like a first home buyer that wants to live in the property and they're looking at their loan capacity, an extra 50K or 100K to them is might be meaningless. It's all a lifestyle, if they love it, that type of thing. So jewel key properties, you know, is another thing, you know, any property with some really odd layout where it's more conducive to creating a little bit of extra cash flow may not be in your best interest, especially when you exit from that property at a point in time. Um, again, kind of moving on into the whole holding of that property as well. You know, I think a lot of people, at least on paper, expect their property to work a certain way during the ownership. But the reality of it is if you, let's say, for example, you have a house, a lot of rooms, you know, the property you bought is near a university. So the intention is to get huge cash flow by renting to students. That's the intention. But the reality is a lot of vacancies, students moving in and out, a lot of maintenance, students, not only is, you know, you've got, you know, eight individuals potentially using one kitchen, using one bathroom, you know, the demographic students by nature are not going to be looking after the stuff inside. So you're going to be spending a lot of money on, you know, replacing taps and, you know, wear and tear, all that type of stuff. And this goes for a lot of these types of properties that have these sort of, um, you know, dual living or maybe uh, any capacity to bring in some short-term rental boost. You know, it may not work out how you planned, you know, during the ownership. And what I see is at that point, at a certain point, that's when they want to try and get rid of it. And they can't because they're stuck with something. Well, they can, they have to make, they have to take a loss. Your exit is really equally as important as your entry because you know, your ability to sell a house is key, is crucial. When you buy something and it goes up in value, you only really, really, truly realize it is when you sell it. We hear some perspective on this topic as we hear about one of Lou's clients and the situation he had on his entry and exit. Most of my clients haven't actually sold their properties yet. But I did have a particular client that did buy a, uh, you know, townhouse in, in the Logan area and he his intention was to sell it, but he couldn't. And now luckily for this particular client, he had, you know, funds to buy another property anyway, but he kind of just wanted to get out of, you know, a bit of a dud property that he initially purchased. So what was his reasoning behind purchasing that one initially in that townhouse there? Do you know what his motivation was behind it? He was attracted by the yield. He was sold 
that particular property with the yield in mind. And a lot of investors need to be very careful because there are a lot of people out there that are pushing the cash flow agenda to sell a property, whether it's a selling agent or, you know, a spruker or any so-called property expert. Um, it's very important to do your due diligence. Can you rent it out? Will it stay rented? What are the true costs of owning that property? And again, what's the exit strategy? So for this particular client, he um, you know initially was lured in by the yields, and it got to a point where it just wasn't uh, wasn't performing as a as an investment property. So in order to move forward, he wanted to sell it and replace it with a property that will actually perform, you know, over time. What does non-performance look like? Non-performance is basically just holding a property that does nothing over a long period of time. Um, you might get some really bad tenants in there, which is actually a, a lot of the case when you're buying cheap housing in very low socio areas. You know, the type of tenant that if it is a low socio area, they can't afford even a house and they have to look at like a townhouse option, then you're really renting to, to a demographic that is maybe just barely able to afford the rent in the first place. So again, that would translate to very transient tenants moving in and out, a lot of vacancy period, you know, a lot of wear and tear, a lot of uh, maybe malicious damage to your property, a lot of insurance claims. So investors, like any rational investor can only experience that for so long before they've they're like, you know, it's too much for me. I need to give, you know, I need to either sell it or stop investing altogether. Yeah. And this is actually one of the reasons why I see most investors, they start off very optimistic. They see, you know, other people experience success and they might be a little bit naive, you know, entering into property and they buy a property or they get sold to a property that promises cash flow because cash flow is safe. You know, people, when they first start off investing, they're kind of looking at less risky options. And in their mind, oh, you know, if a property looks after itself with cash flow, then it's going to be safe. So a lot of people take advantage of that expectation from new investors. And unfortunately, a lot of new investors fall into the trap. And when these maintenance and vacancies and, and just headaches build up, it really puts a damper on, you know, oh, you know, is, is property investment really for me or can I really achieve my goals? And they become really negative. And really, like, you speak to any investor that's reached a certain level where they've maybe achieved their goal of passive income or, you know, quote unquote success, it's all mindset. It's all attitude. You know, being able to own assets, like during the whole ownership period, to be able to manage those constant headaches. There is more to property investing than meets the eye and we gain some behind-the-scenes knowledge about what goes into it. It can have a string of really bad tenants, you know, and it could cost you thousands of dollars, but if you don't focus on the big picture, then sometimes it can really um, make you question whether it's all worth it or not. And look, I think a lot of people glamorize owning lots of properties. It's all about, you know, living the life and, you know, retirement and this type of stuff. The actual reality is the more properties you own, the more calls you're going to get from your property manager the more hot water tanks you're looking after, the more kitchens you're looking after, the more tenants you have to babysit. You know, the risk of having something go wrong is higher. And the and yeah, you know, you, you might get to a certain level where you're getting a call every week or every other day about, oh, leaking tap, fix the air con. Um, you know, we're recording this in, in December and I've had or already had to replace three air cons in my properties because what happens is no one uses them during the winter period and they collect dust and no one no one looks after them and then when they turn it on in summer oh something's wrong with it you know 
you need to be fixed. Uh, so, you know, little things like that can really put a damper on your property during the ownership period. Coming back to what this particular client, this, that's the reason why I wanted to sell because he was he bought this property with the intention of really good yield. Um, it was just way too much for him and he just wanted to get out of it. But when he found out when it came to sell, he couldn't actually sell it. He couldn't sell it for a price where he didn't lose money because don't forget when you buy a property, let's say you buy a property at $200,000, you know, you got your stamp duty, you got your legal costs. Um, you know, if you did a few, put a few thousand dollars into it to get it up and running, you got that to add on top. And when you sell it, you got to pay commissions. You know, there's all these legal costs again, all these costs to add to the ownership of a property. And even if you were to sell it for 200,000, so you bought it for 200,000, you sell it for 200, you make a lot. So for that, that's a bit of pill for a lot of people to swallow. You know, so that's why, again, having a, a solid exit strategy from any property is super important. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into Simon Liu's advice on the properties to look out for. One of the other things that we should also focus on is buying a property that will appeal to everybody. Buying a property that will appeal to investors, to own occupiers, you know, to any like developers maybe even. How to renovate on a small budget but add value. From a purely investment perspective, the number one thing about a renovation is keeping the budget down. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. So roughly how long did this person have this property for? It was only a two, two to three year period. So not a very long period at all. I mean, it really only takes one bad tenant to really undo a lot of the initial intention of what the property was going to play out to be. We find out about the current situation of his client and whether he has been able to sell and move on from that property. It remains to be seen because he hasn't sold it yet. <laughs> but the property, uh, sorry, hasn't sold the, the property that we bought together yet. Um, but what I like to stick to when I'm buying these properties is obviously, you know, like I talked about in previous episodes is the fundamentals of what makes a good property, you know, the area, the numbers, below market value, cash flow, all that type of stuff. But one of the other things that we should also focus on is buying a property that will appeal to everybody. Buying a property that will appeal to investors, to own occupiers, you know, to any like developers maybe even. The houses I tend to go uh, go for and the type of house that he bought was a property that's just a standard three, four bedroom. Um, this was a four bedroom house, um, brick house. It was a corner block over 700 square meters with a lot of land, a lot of slide access that you can put up maybe even a granny flat at some stage or, you know, a, a nice big shed. Um, the internal floor plan, the house was about 25 years old, which is a, actually a good thing because back then, the floor plans were a lot more generous than they are today. You know, your, your standard house and land packages nowadays are very, very small in internal layout. So this particular house was about 25 years old. So, you know, it had the four bedrooms, but it also had two or three living areas. You got a rumpus, you got a, a living room, a dining room, you got like a family room. So what that translates to is a lot of ability to add value internally, add extra rooms, you know, you can reconfigure and that again adds value. This is one of those houses and that you can see if you were to spend, you know, if you were to sell one day, let's say for example, you you know, we for this property we paid, I think it was about three hundred and forty thousand dollars or something for it in this particular suburb. 
you know, its experience is capital growth. You know, potentially you can sell it as is again for five hundred thousand dollars. But it's the kind of property that if you spent fifty k on it to make it look, you know, render it to do a bit of landscaping, to obviously paint and carpet inside, new kitchen, new bathrooms. You could potentially, you know, every dollar you put in, you might be able to get three back because you sell it, you're suddenly creating that appeal to an owner-occupier who is after that kind of thing, you know, like after comfort, yeah. after new, after something that they uh, can imagine themselves living in. And in any suburb in Australia, you know, regional, capital city, you know, blue chip, lower socio, you know, real estate accommodate, you type in the suburb, you you know, if you uh, filter it from high to low in terms of pricing, it's always, if we're comparing like a same four bedroom, two bathroom, two garage house, the newly renovated ones with nice pictures that has been staged, those are the ones that get a significant price, a significantly higher price than the ones that, you know, are a little bit dated or they might be, you know, bit weird layouts and things like that. We delve into how to go about looking for properties that are worthy of investing, but still manage to fit within your budget. Using Logan as an example, you know, it's a huge area. You know, there's uh, 64 suburbs in Logan. And geographically, it's actually larger than Brisbane as well. Within Logan, you've got some, you know, probably some of the worst areas in Australia. But then you've also got some of the nicest areas in Australia in terms of some really large acreage properties. Um, there are some suburbs that are, you know, million dollar mark type properties. So, you know, it's important to look at individual suburbs, you know, based on their own merits or their own downfall. You really don't want to buy at the bottom end. If your budget doesn't allow you to buy in a family friendly, suburban, quieter area, even if it's lower socioeconomic, that's not, that's not the deal breaker. But if you can only afford the worst house in the worst suburb, in the worst area, my advice is really don't, to don't buy. Just save up a bit more money. It's not going to be a lot. And to focus on areas that are a little bit livable, you know, have more of a chance of gentrification. Not saying these super low socio areas don't have that same potential, but it's less likely and it will also take longer. And ultimately, when you're building up a portfolio as well, I guess the tenants is going to be crucial to choose. So that demographic is important, which ties back into, you know, the exit strategy because if you're buying a property that has good tenants in there for long term, then obviously if you're going to sell it in the future, you might also have good tenants or owner-occupy appeal as well too. We all have the intention to reach our goals in property, but property is a very long-term game. Most of the time, it's 10 years plus between buying and selling a property. But a lot can happen in 10 years you know, that are out of our control. So if you're in a position that, you know, you have to sell the property financially or for whatever personal circumstance that you're under duress at that particular time, you know, look, they say property isn't liquid, but at least you need to know that you should be able to sell it without having to completely uh, drop your pants on price. <laughs> you know, so, so I think, um, yeah, it's super important to just ensure that you have a sellable house. Lou shares with us what he recommends we should be looking at when buying a property that will ultimately help on exit. Unless you're getting a bargain, you should buy a property that is not super polished. You know, because think about it, when you're buying a property that's not super polished, you're buying a property at a not polished price. There's more of a chance that you can pick up a good deal, an ugly duckling on the way in. A cosmetic reno does not cost a lot of money. I think people watch too many television shows 
where renovations can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it might do so in your personal house to live in. But you know, twenty thousand dollars, even just twenty thousand dollars, can go a very long way to spruce up a house completely. So look for that potential. Look for that potential where you can put in a dollar and get three out. You know, when you sell. On the topic of renovation. Lou talks us through some of the specific renovations that can add the most value. From a purely investment perspective, the number one thing about a renovation is keeping the budget down. It's not about the way a certain thing looks. You can make a house look very, very presentable on a very small budget. It comes down to actually investing as a whole. Just don't get emotional about it. When I say don't get emotional, you don't need to buy the four hundred dollar tap. You know. The $50 tab looks just as presentable, you know, from a selling perspective. Don't forget when you're selling a property, most people just view the property. They don't even spend half an hour looking at the property. They go in, they go out and they negotiate and then they end up buying the property. It's all about first impressions. Um, so keep it clean, keep it tidy, keep it simple, keep it neutral. Don't do anything out there. Don't do anything a bit weird. No pinks, no greens, not even light green. Just stick to, you know, just your neutral colors. Um, look to save money. A really good example is kitchens. Instead of buying new cabinets, can you refurbish the existing ones with the paint? If you've got a burnt countertop, can you sand it down and recoat it? Bathtubs, you know, if it's a bit old, you know, instead of replacing it, can you just paint over it? So little things like that make a big difference. Is there anything you can save? So if you have to replace a shower, or you want to retile a shower, can you keep the screen? That might be in fully working order. You know, don't go over the top. Keep a budget in mind, and you know, do what's necessary. I mean, it really depends on what area. Obviously, if you're renovating in somewhere like a super blue chip area, then you kind of need to use the same kind of standards of of fit and finish.、Um, but most of the time, when we're talking about investment grade properties, you know, simple is best. Paint job, carpets,、um, you know, or flooring. Little things can make a huge difference, like light fittings. You know,、oh, yeah. ch- changing light fittings can be a huge thing. One of the biggest differences that I see. With kitchens, is just simply changing the doorknobs,、uh, the knobs to the to the wardrobe. If it's like an older style one, if you just go out and buy some like you know four dollar ones from Bunnings that are a nice sort of modern brushed aluminium kind of look to it, that can completely change the look. So look for those tiny little shortcuts that that can make a huge difference. Making the slightest difference with a renovation can have a huge impact on the perception of the house in the tenant's eyes. I'm always on the philosophy that you shouldn't spend too much money before. Having a tenant move in, because a tenant will never look after your, you know, brand new paint, your brand new carpets. Actually, that's a really bad assumption on my behalf. Apologise to all the tenants. Does that, does that mean that you don't look after your properties? <laughs> But they're just not going to. I、yeah. mean, you're just going to experience wear and tear. Yeah, of course. Even with the most careful of tenants,、yes. you know, you're going to get your walls are going to be bashed around a little bit. They're going to be、yeah. scratched. You know, you're going to have the bed marks on the carpet and the couch marks and all that type of stuff. You know, I always keep the property in a rentable, safe, tidy, presentable condition. And then when you sell it, that's when you want to use, when you want to spend the big bucks to make it look complete. You know, like even with paint nowadays, I I paint rooms individually. You know, a lot of people when they say paint, they think about painting the entire house. I go,、oh, okay,、yeah. which room? Okay. Yeah, there's some marks on this particular room. Looks particularly bad. Just paint this room and then be done with it. This is a very interesting conversation, but I think it was kind of important to just to give people an idea because when you are looking at buying, you also want to consider that exit, as you've mentioned as well too. Is there anything else you want to add about、um, the exit strategy? 
if you're looking at um yeah looking at buying as well my only suggestion is just to um you know don't don't get lured into you know overpromised you know cash flows and don't step outside of the norm if you're, you're talking about residential stick to residential yeah. think about what most people want to live in what they want to buy what makes a a good property yeah just uh, stay away from the absolute cheapest bottom type properties Thank you to buyer's agent Simon Liu, our guest on this special episode of Invest Like a Pro presented by Housefinder. Also, for being a loyal listener of the podcast, I've asked Simon to offer a free one-hour strategy session normally valued at $500 to help you put together an actionable property plan. To get your free strategy session, simply visit housefinder.com.au and fill out the contact form or call Simon directly on 0415 626 342 and quote, property investory.